0: Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. We are on location at the Brownstone Art. Enjoy the episode. Podcast. Hi, Eric. So, um, Mike says you're shy. I'm shy too. So, this I should work out in the most quiet episode.
1: I can be. Yeah. I get nervous in these sort of situations. What? But I, you know, I don't know. I when I get nervous, my mind goes blank, and I fear that I won't remember anything about what's influenced me or myself or my work so I'm hoping just the images at that point will have to take over but I, I'm going to give it a shot
0: yeah I, uh, I, I think that's probably one of the reasons I chose the podcast medium because I just cannot talk to people for the most part like you put me in, a, in front of microphones with anybody I'll be able to do it but if I'm at like a networking event with people who have the power to make or break me I shut down completely. I don't, I don't even know what to do about it. But for some reason, this works for me.
1: Even art openings are hard for me. That, that lar- A larger group of people is harder. This is going to be a little easier, one-on-one. I like that more. Or small groups. Even teaching. Every day I go in for teaching, I uh, have little butterflies in my stomach before. Even if I know exactly what I'm doing and I'm excited about it, I still get that sort of uh, nervous Nervousness for maybe the first five minutes and then I'm flying, I'm fine. But it always starts.
0: How many art openings have you done? Do you count? No,
1: I, I don't count. I, I have a tendency to hermit myself away for periods of time and then I'll go put myself out in the world and then I'll shrink back in. Do as much as I can and then I shrink back in and I go back to work in the studio and then I, I go in bursts. I'm not a constant...
0: When you're working in the studio, are you, are you just like in a zone, not sure where it's going to end up, or are you actively working towards what will eventually be an opening?
1: That's a really good question. I, I don't usually work towards an opening. I work towards um, whatever the ends to my means are in that moment. Like I have a series of images that I wish to do, and I would do those, but I don't think about them. Organizationally, as a show, I think about them organizationally, how they relate to each other, and then a show can come out of that. So I just, I'm pretty good at monitoring and following my progression as an artist. I keep a flat file, keep everything. And so I can look back at drawings that I did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and find little pieces of how it relates and has influenced me on pieces that I do now. But I I really think that, for me, it's important to know my path.
0: I've always been curious about the art world and the gallery world. I sort of became obsessed with it in 2016 and started writing films around it. Um, I had this... Do you know The Death and Life of Great American Cities by Jane Jacobs? No. It's this uh, critical essay book that she wrote in the 60s that basically brings into question those big super blocks that the housing projects are on and why they're bad for neighborhoods. And I decided to do an art house interpretation of it. And so one of the things the character does in it is he goes gallery hopping on Thursday nights. He calls it the Thursday night hustle. And and the the guy in the movie was an artist, a gallery artist, who basically I filmed him teaching me This entire world, and I'm just blown away by it because there's just so much energy to it. Uh, And I I would, I would think that knowing that you're going to be, whenever you're going to have an opening, that there must be some sort of
1: excitement. There's, there's excitement and fear. There's, well, because it's so precious to you, and you're working so hard uh, on your form of communication and what you do, and so our openings. What's exciting about it is being able to see the work out of your studio and it has a life of its own. And in this case, they're bird drawings. So there's this a flight that happens, a migration from my studio to a new space. And it's, I feel like it's a, 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 a wonderful thing that, that's happening. But then there's a room full of people as well. And so people start asking you questions. And there's a lot of tension on me, the person at Art Opening, when I don't, I would rather be a behind-the-scenes person and let the artwork, let people like dive into, take a deep dive into the artwork. And that's what the gallery is for, but it's not necessarily what the art opening is for. Art openings are more about um, celebrating with your peers, um, which is really, really wonderful. And when you recognize, when you have that moment, like I had for my art opening here at the Brownstone, where I had so many wonderful friends and family come to this opening and peers and artists that, and writers that I respect so much um, and that they were here for my opening. I, was, I felt incredibly blessed. Um, and you feel that community and the necessity of that community when you have an art opening. And it, this show in particular made me realize that I need to make sure that I keep this as part of my work regimen. Not to hermit away as much as I normally do.
0: Is there is there an overlap between uh, the project that you were wrapping up to bring here and the next one? Like do you, you have um, something going on now.
1: This is book one, um, and this is a project that will is never ending in my lifetime. It it will never end. This this particular show uh, focuses on the bird drawings, um, and it's basically. Uh, the beginning, uh, the beginnings of my reproduction of Audubon's Birds of North America, which was his Elephant Folio, this giant series of, of uh, installments of his work, where he made, picked the largest piece of paper that they had available at the time, as elephant paper, and he wanted to draw the birds life size, and so the, it's big works. And you can get the reproductions are like 11 by 17. That's the size, you know, smaller size. I'm doing eight and a half by 11 images, but he did 435 birds for that book, and I want to do 435 birds as well. So I'll be doing them my entire life. They might not always be the focus of what I'm I'm doing because I do painting and sculptures as well, and and uh, getting into some throwing pots right now. But I would love to hit that 435 mark. I'm 55 now, though, so I don't know if I have, I have it in me. I'm hoping that I'll have enough time to do them. But there's a, there's a big difference between his book and my book. Um, he has this beautiful love of, of the bird, which everyone, most people are, have an attraction or understand the, the beauty and magicalness of, of birds. But these are all portraits as well. So there are people who choose a bird, And I draw the bird as realistically as I can while I think about them. And then the painted aspect is more of a spiritual aspect. And I try to focus on them and let the painting be who they really are. Like maybe the the drawing is the facade or the exteriors that are seen, but the real spiritual connection comes out when I do the painting or the thought of that connection. Um, To give myself, like, to go into, you know whatever electrical currents there are and the connectivity of humanity, I try to find them in it, in the painting and bring that joy out.
0: Yeah, you're not the first person I've heard this year talking about the spiritual spirituality of birds or the spiritual connection of birds. I try to get a guy on the podcast who's obsessed with owls specifically. And all his books just kind of talk about owl sightings and how they're always connected with like somebody's personal awakening or something like that. There's
1: there's a lot of uh, uh, mythical uh, stories that are attracted and surround birds. Owls definitely have a spiritual sense in a lot of different cultures. I have a friend in particular who's also quite addicted to owls, whether it be uh, drawings, paintings, tchotchkes, Christmas ornaments, anything owls uh, that he can get his hands on. But I think that people gravitate to these these little creatures for many different reasons. And the stories that evolve from them, it, from people's imagination, I'm kind of carrying that on two dimensionally, my own little miniature stories.
0: What, what is elephant paper?
1: It's, it was the largest paper available at the time. Uh, so when he, when, when he describes it as the, uh, or they describe it as his elegant, ele, elephant folio, elephant just means big. And oh. so it was the largest piece of paper that he could get at the time to produce these um, paintings and etchings of his birds uh, that he that he made the 435 for that folio, but they were it was really I forget the exact dimensions 28 by 46. I mean, it was they're very very large, and the people that he sold these uh, copies of these books to these different installments. Uh, Most of them unbound the books and sold the pieces individually as our work. So there are very few remaining original copies of the original book. Have
0: you ever seen an original?
1: Um, I've seen some of the images, um, but I have not seen... I don't think I've seen the fully bound book. There was a series that was shown uh, at the Audubon Society, um, but I I don't believe I've seen the the whole...
0: Actually, maybe I have.
1: No, I think it was a copy. Yeah. Something that I saw, yeah. But uh, it's, it's, it's a treasure, an absolute treasure. And although his, his images were all birds that were dead, I mean, at that time, naturalists were drawing, shooting, drawing, because was, it was in plenty, and everything was very plentiful at the time, so there was no thought of conservation when it came to birds or disturbing of nests, or uh, they would just shoot them and paint them or draw them collect them. There was a whole whole movement in the late 1800s of cabinets people would have of curiosities that they would find and it was called their naturalist cabinets. And they would put rocks and birds nests and all sorts of things in there to be explorers. Mm-hmm. And I wish that we people still did that more today.
0: Yeah. One of these, one of the art projects I have planned for the next year is actually building a replica of an eagle's nest, but with pet collars inside it. (laughs) It's for a film I'm developing, it's a monster movie.
1: That is a monster movie. They are are fierce birds. They are
0: huge. It's 100% based on real images of eagle's nests. Yeah. I, I
1: I actually know of a dog that was taken by a hawk.
0: Really? Yeah. What? what it happened in
1: my uh, local park, Cooper Park, over in uh, Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and it was so sad. It was horrifying. And there's hawks, red tailed hawks, all around. You know, yeah. it's, there's right up by Newtown Creek, and a, a woman had her Chihuahua, a very small Chihuahua, off leash. And it was kind of in the middle of the field, and she wasn't paying attention and didn't know. Why would you think that? You're in the city. Yeah. And nature took its course.
0: Yeah, I started seeing on TikTok, because I follow all the animal TikToks, is they dress their chihuahuas in this coat that has spikes coming out of it.
1: Safety purposes. Yeah. Safety purposes. That's like the sculpture (laughs) I have over there that has spikes. It was, that's for privacy purposes, you know, for, to have their moment. Interesting. Yeah.
0: Yeah, we're going to do a tour of the artwork at the end, but... um,
1: Luckily, the chihuahua was taken away out of view. Oh yeah. Or it could have been more, even more traumatic. Yeah, I don't was.
0: know. I I know you can't, like, you can't shoot the. No. You can't shoot them down, even if no. that's happening. It's
1: illegal. No, it's yeah, they're protected, and it's yeah. it's a natural it's a natural thing that's yeah. happening.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah.
1: Well, but that eagle nest is going to be giant because eagles' nests are huge yeah. and yeah. heavy. Well, so.
0: it's, supposed, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things I'm dragging my heels on because I have no place to actually build it yet. And I got, for the film I made over the pandemic, uh, my landlord sent me a cease and desist because I'd taken over the entire basement of the apartment building. I didn't think anybody was going to actually come down yeah. there, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, and uh, luckily I'd wrapped up everything I was doing down there. But
1: In the city yeah, we share.
0: In the city we share. In the city we share. Yeah. And honestly, like, I, I'm using the public stairwell as my office at this point, <laughs> so. Gotta
1: share, like give yeah. someone, they, you take a little, you gotta give a little. Absolutely. That's how it works. Uh. That's what's so wonderful about these pieces, the the amount of share that I got out of um, people wanting to be part of this project as well. Um, how many people who wanted to choose a bird, and i I actually lost a bird book along the way. I had a field guide, and I would have... Whatever job I was working at, I would talk to people that I was getting to know. And I'd say, just choose a bird, write your name in the back, and, and write your bird down. And in that process, and I had hundreds of books in the back written up, someone stole my bird book. I like to think they didn't actually steal it. I like to think it was an accident. Hmm. So then I had to go back and restart the list.
0: It depends on how... How much faith do you have in humanity? I
1: have a lot of faith in humanity yeah. most of the time. I think that's why I choose these images to be um, the connectivity to be about positive. Like if I'm thinking about someone really hard, I'm not trying to think about the evils they've done in life. I'm trying to focus on the, the goodness of the human spirit, you know, or, or the the goodness that we can get out of. Uh, reaching out, and connecting and understanding that there is a plane out there somewhere that's we're all the same everything is the same we can all have a moment of understanding without words or without preconceived ideas or a want without a want from someone. And as an artist and as humans, it's kind of hard we always have a want. you want you want your work to be seen. you want your film or your book to be read you want someone to like you, you want to be part of a certain scene, but I think the moment that I got over, or the moments that I get over that want, the more natural connection happens.
0: I would agree with that. I uh, I used to, I mean, I came to New York, I wanted to be part of Hollywood, the, that big media machine. And yeah. Now I despise it, I want nothing to do with it. And It, it just really comes from just, for me, it came with just meeting people. I'm more inspired by what you and Mike are doing than what they're putting in theaters. And all I ever knew before I came here was movies. Yeah, I didn't read much. Um, now I got two degrees in writing, which is basically a reading degree. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta read to write, yeah. Uh, and my last two feature films came from, mixed, for the most part, inspired by mixed-media art. Like, and it's just... Uh, I think once you start meeting people and you start talking to people, uh, yeah, your wants change to needs. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: The needs, and, and they evolve. And I think that it's changed a lot the older I get. Um, I think it's just you know, the seasoning of getting older and, and understanding uh, what you can do. And some of the, there's a lot of insecurity and fears about showing those things that you might consider weaknesses either about yourself especially when you're an artist and you look at your work from maybe 10, 15 years ago and you're like I have evolved so much since then I'm trying like this show is the first time that I tried to incorporate work that is from the bird drawings that aren't in the past two years or three years I incorporated works that were 10 years old or 15 years old because I I don't want to be the person in life that doesn't appreciate the journey Mm -hmm. and I don't want to the person that only shows like this flat one-sided you know like in Instagram or, or you know facade only you know i want i want all the gooeyness to show too or the the journey because you know that i couldn't get to this without going through that and i think it's important especially for young artists and for people that in any field to tell you the truth this stress that comes from striving for perfection. You you don't get there overnight. You don't That stress is is about ignoring the journey and not appreciating learning from the mistakes.
0: Yeah, well one of the things that <clears throat> I'm a real big advocate for is not hiding your development. Like in my MFA for writing, they kept saying don't put your old work out there. Don't put your work in progresses out there. And I couldn't disagree with more. But there's this idea that you have to present yourself as a creative as you are a natural talent. Everything's learned. You might have a natural talent to draw Mm -hmm. or, or paint or something like that. But all craft for the most part is learned and developed over a lifetime. And I wish that the sort of system was more honest about that. And so what I did with with my short story, Fritz, which I just gave you, (laughs) um, is the story that was published is there, but then there are subsequent drafts after it. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I I was documenting how this short story came into existence all the way down to a few notes I emailed to myself while I was on the highway, which I probably shouldn't have done. Granted. (laughs) Because I was driving. Granted, but... but yeah. yeah, it is what it is. Um,
1: and- but that's a gift. To share that with people, that's very generous of you. To let them see the process. Because, you know, it, people only learn that process in school. Like maybe when you're a freshman or sophomore, you're taught that there's a process and that you're going through a process. But then it's ignored and you're supposed to not pay attention to that process. You're supposed to have a product. Yeah. And there's so much more to be said about the, the messiness of the journey.
0: I think the, the the beauty in it is the messiness.
1: I think so. And like I
0: love the the, the visual of a, just a, a messy studio, paint all over the place. You know, you know exactly that's, that's what I'm describing. My- <laughs> uh, like that is is where it's at for me and. Um, <laughs> My basement floor now uh, in my apartment building is splattered with all kinds of black paint. And I thought, hey, I think it looks way better than the gray they had there before.
1: Right. <laughs> well, again, the community will have to vote on that one. <laughs> they love it, too. Yeah. yeah. Well, it shows someone's working.
0: Yeah. I mean, my neighbors felt, they said they felt safer knowing that I was doing that. Like,
1: yeah. Someone's there. There's not someone hiding in the basement. There's someone working. Yeah. And you have, you have to appreciate too when you know someone is working. Yeah. And you know when someone is not. And you know when someone is. And you. I want to watch that person working. I want to be that person working. You know, I want to get over whatever the humps or the block, roadblocks, get around them as quickly as possible and get back to working. Because that's. That driving force is who I am and it's always been who I am. And. If I can help as many people along the way in life, that's fantastic. Or turn them on to looking at things differently or wanting to go for a walk in the woods with me so we can you know, use our eyes more, use our ears more, pay attention more. Because I, it's so easy to just try to get from A to B. I've got to do this, this, and this. But that space in between, that space in between, it's not blank. It's just, it's not a blank space. And those, all those little things are really what make you up. That's the fabric of who you are.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, Well, I mean, you do help out a lot of people. You're a teacher.
1: I am a teacher, too. Can you talk
0: about about your approach in teaching all of the young undergrads?
1: I'm currently (laughs) teaching at Parsons, the new school, and I am part of the core curriculum uh, for the first-year class. So I teach time, uh, which is... uh, Obviously an abstract and hard to
0: you can keep going.. Okay.
1: Uh, it's hard to you know, pin down or even have you can have discussions about it and how you wish to explore it, how you wish to look at it, and how language changes how we think about time. But essentially I'm teaching a, a film class or a visual class that teaches them how to create an image, depending on the project I'm working on. Um, I try to we're teaching the Adobe suite at Parsons so it's InDesign and Premiere Pro and teaching them how to when you move something it has an effect if something is bigger it means something different than if it's smaller and feel it's further away and it's kind of just basic compositional tools to learn and distance and movement equal time you know so this is how the concept comes you know to be discussed visually but we also talk about and I'm really I lean more towards time-based medium so it's film or performance or a sound piece uh, or an animation so and there most of them are non-majors in these fields so it's completely uncharted waters which is really exciting for me and horrifying for them but uh I like watching the lights start to flash in their head and in their eyes and they, when they try new things. Like Each time you do something, some, it's kind of like jumping off a cliff, I'm like, I'm going to do it. The water's cold, I'm going in. And once they get in, and they realize, I can do this, because most of them are horrified of the programs. They're like, it's too big, I don't know what all these buttons are, I don't know what this is. And they're afraid to do it. Like generations before, a few generations before this class, they learned how to do the programs, but now programs, everyone has an app for it. So you can just push a button and what I'm teaching them to do can happen. Mm-hmm. Now they're, so they're not computer savvy. They just are app savvy.
0: Yeah, and I'm, it's so funny because I try doing it with these new apps and I can't.
1: It's not the same. I could do it the old way. Do it the old way. Yeah, it's, you, you, you lose your path when you do it someone else's way. Yeah. And it, it's hard to teach someone that did, you can you can make your own path, and maybe it's better than that path. Maybe it's more interesting than that path. Just try something different, like to get them to experiment, not not to produce, not to be perfect, but to experiment and to grow.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm. Are you an advocate for like if somebody's studying film to push them to study other mediums, or if somebody's studying painting to have them? try sculpting?
1: I think it's a wonderful idea. I think, I think that, especially when you're younger, actually at any age, to tell you the truth, because I just started throwing pots last year, and I'm loving that, and it's, it brought a wonderful meditative uh, moment to the studio for me, and it assisted when I went into painting again. So, yes. I say yes to all of this, but especially film, people who are actors or for film, you should take dance. You should understand movement of your body in front of the camera. You should understand the difference between reality and projecting something. Like If you want to project something, how to exaggerate to a point without being exaggerating. In a graphic image, how to learn how to draw something like you can reproduce it, but what can you do to make it pop? Or How are you changing it? Do you change the shadow on it? Do you change the scale of the eye or the, the head or the tilt or the turn to get the attention composition on the page?
0: Yeah,
1: Those, yeah I think it's really important to, to continually educate yourself. I, I will never stop learning. Never. I will never know everything I need to know. I have to read. I have to draw. I have to paint. I'll sculpt. I'll rotate to something else. I'm an amateur mycologist, I like to go, you know, boating and fishing, and I, I want to be exposed to as much things as possible and continue learning uh, from these things and not, not ever go into a stagnation mode.
0: Yeah, well, there's a term I, I, I have said on this podcast many times, because I, I myself am one, and that's a lifelong learner. Yes. And anything that's remotely interesting, I want to be an expert at.
1: That's, you know what, it, you take a deep dive. Yeah. Most people, there's skimming. There's lots of skimming. Sometimes uh, you only have time for the skim, but if you can take that deep dive... Yeah. Oh, that's so exciting.
0: Yeah. I, uh, that's, sort of a, that's sort of also a, a theme that's ongoing in some of my later work is, is if you want to learn how to do it, there's ways to go and learn how to do it. And I mean, one of my passions that I really want to do is get a, a private pilot's license. <laughs> For like a Cessna, you know, just something small.
1: Oh, that horrifies me. (laughs) Oh, I love it. I've only been
0: able to afford one lesson at this point. But um, what I do, though, is I'll listen to ATC chatter of planes coming and going to hear how they talk. And I'll look at tutorial videos on YouTube. And there's also flights. And so I know technically by this point how to fly and land a plane. And I've done it once in real life. But, like, I don't know. It's just, it's just one of those things that it's not in my orbit. Like, I grew up in a maritime community. Mm-hmm. And I am scared of heights. I'm fucking terrified of it. Me too. And I will bleep that. Don't worry. <laughs> and
1: it's... That's all right. I'm a, I'm a cusser like a truck driver. <laughs> um,
0: that's good. I am too. Um, but there's just something about the way aviators communicate that inspires me. It's so efficient and effective and just foreign. It's a foreign language. And even today, like after listening to it for years, I still have no idea what the hell they're talking about.
1: It's like an auditory Morse code. What language is that? How are you, what does that mean?
0: Right, but it's possible to learn.
1: Yes.
0: And you don't even need to like take classes. You need to take classes to get the government certification. That's about it.
1: Yeah. But that's, that's not on my list. No, that's, that's a well, wonderful thing to have on the you list. You like but
0: boating, so one I of my like other passions that I really want to do is learn how to sloop sail without the engine. I think that's great.
1: I got a little Hopi uh, craft type of thing that I uh, sail on the lake, and I've done it a few times. So, and that is extremely exciting for me, just to drift out there, and you know, learn how to duck when you have to duck, and move <laughs> sail back and forth, and it's small, like a little bitty space. Yeah. Uh, but I find that to be really exciting. And that was a dream of mine from childhood. And I finally got to it three years ago.
0: Would you ever try, try to sail something bigger, like a 40-footer?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I can't say no. Uh, usually if someone dares me, I'll do it. You know, I'll, I have to try. I'm, I'm not one to say no. If I can do something, I, I will. Like I usually do things out of necessity. Like when a pipe broke, I learned how to do plumbing. Mm. If I had to wire something, I took out a book from the library on electrical circuitry, roofing, whatever. So if I I'm more practical about a lot of my learning. But like learning just for pure pleasure, like that. I don't know what it is that I would pick to learn. Certainly not flying, that'd be absolutely not. Maybe scuba diving think I'd, I'd like to see what's underneath
0: that's interesting because that's equally as terrifying in its own way because it is you go to you come up too quickly and then you got to go into that tank mm-hmm. and the only thing i know about that tank is from a baywatch episode where the guy almost died and he was having all these nightmares the bends yeah the bends mm-hmm. and it's just like oh no i'd rather fall from the clouds
1: <laughs> <laughs> than drowned in the deep yes <laughs> well, the, I think that you know, it's the unknown, and either you're excited by the unknown or you're terrified of the unknown. Hmm. Like, what will happen if? And I think creatives in general, um, they take the dive. Whether it's from the plane or into the water, they take the dive.
0: If if Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos gave you a free ticket, would you take it? Just for a spin around the the earth? Yeah, you
1: would? I think I would. I I think that I wish I could have been in there with William Shatner more than anything. But oh, God! Oh, Bill Shatner, I love you. Um, but I I don't I don't think I could say no to that. I don't think I could say no to that at all. Yeah, me neither. I'd like to be in a place of no gravity. That'd be so cool.
0: Well, they sell those flights. Um, it was a plane. I, A plane that NASA uses to train astronauts where they go up and then it free falls and then you just kind of inside it and you just, you're weightless.
1: I would like that. I would like to, I would like to feel that. So I would say, yes, I would do that. Cool. And hope that it wouldn't kill me, you know.
0: You're more likely to get killed on the expressway. Absolutely. (laughs) That place is dangerous. I know it. (laughs) Are you
1: a defensive or offensive driver? Defensive. Mm-hmm.
0: I renew my defensive driving uh, status every three years.
1: That's good. Yeah. yeah, I'm very reactive. I'm always watching what others are doing, and I'm reacting to it. Yeah. And I'm a very safe driver. Very I'm driver. also
0: against the left lane. I think that that thing is a suicide lane.
1: I have problems with the left lane, to be completely honest. Not to be off topic here, but I have problems with the left lane. I think it's, I blame it on being left-handed, and I know that's absurd. But I gravitate to the left lane. And I constantly have to remind myself, get out of that lane.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Maybe that's I'm left-handed too. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's the
1: I lean to the I lean yeah. to the left and I have to keep pulling myself back into the mainstream and not the passing lane.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I just stay to the right and I go I go slower than the speed limit, at least in New York. It's wiser. Yeah.
1: I try to stay with the the flow of the the motion. The motion that's happening, I stay with it. I'm going to ride that wave.
0: I just want people to pass me. Get away from me. Because I still, I still consider myself a new driver. I've only had it for five years.
1: You should stay in that lane then. Yeah. Yeah. It takes a lot to get used to it here. I've been yeah. driving since I was 16, so.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I used to drive back in Maine without a license, but that was like rural stuff. It's not like this, so.
1: Yeah. Anyway. I get to see uh, loons in Maine and uh, a moose in Maine and tide pools when Mike and I went camping up there. And I think that uh, camping or being out hiking in nature and Maine's got a lot of good nature up there. Well, it's such a beautiful, beautiful place. I love Maine. Uh, That those type of trips are necessary for me as an artist. I know that seems weird that... People think that artists, you're in the studio 24/7, and you this is what you do the whole time, all the time. But unless I put myself out somewhere else, uh, and for me, nature in particular is like my largest source of inspiration. And people and nature, the combination of the two, I have to be like deep deep dives into both and refill the you know the well, and then I can bring that back to the studio. But if I don't have that sort of Personal interactions and interactions in a natural environment—I I won't be able to make this work, you know.
0: Well, if you ever want recommendations for places to go up there, uh, I'm from one of the islands up there, so I know all those islands.
1: Oh. And uh,
0: you guys would probably just love. It. I
1: would go nuts. Yeah. I would go nuts. I would love it up there. Because they
0: also have like interesting um, hidden structures under some of the islands. So, the island I'm specifically from, there are these hills in the middle of the island. But what they really are are buried oil tanks from World War II oh. because it was a secret fuel depot for the US North Atlantic Fleet. And so you can just like walk around all these strange hills and underneath you is just it's hollow. It's so weird. Wow. Yeah.
1: It's amazing when you start to know where you're from. Like you, you don't know this as a child. You like you learn it later and you're like, What?
0: Well, I used to well when I was a kid it was it was fenced off. It's now a, a conservation area, so there's lots of birds. Right. Um, and you can just, like, walk through it and see deer. Um, We've got a lot of white-tailed deer.
1: Isn't it amazing how fast nature can take it back?
0: Yeah. When oh, given the opportunity... it was instantaneous.
1: It takes it back fast. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, I, I saw it over the pandemic. Uh, when they kind of slowed down upkeeping outside of our apartment, the stairs had grass that first spring.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Like... I don't know You're what like, it where was. did that
1: seed come from? Yeah where did that come from? That's powerful yeah that little seed is so powerful yeah, it's that's a tiny thing one of the
0: reasons I'm not that worried about the earth because if anything, it could just destroy all of us if it wanted to eventually <laughs> eventually it will
1: eventually yeah
0: well, so <clears throat> there was one thing we were talking about before we started that I I wouldn't mind just plugging into here because I think it's an important topic, and that's this idea of artists kind of need to learn how to sort of run themselves, so to speak. Um, On the show, I always bring it up as treat your practice like an an entrepreneur treats their business, but you might have different language for it. And so Mm -hmm. I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Well, I think that it... It's very hard to try to find a balance as uh, a maker to do all of the other necessary, in our society at least, our necessary means of getting the work out there, um, whether it be um, physically hitting the pavement, meeting people, connecting with galleries or connecting with people. And if you're not as you know, gregarious so in those sort of environments, it's difficult and you also have to learn how to do all the paperwork associated with being an artist. You have to be an accountant. You have to be your own manager. You have to be your own advertise. You have to advertise yourself, market yourself. And all of these skills, um, which are more business skills, are not really taught, at least when I went to school. They weren't part of the curriculum. And I think it's important to somehow find a way to either assist artists, um, To facilitate those sort of uh, skills or to have it be an elective or a course that you can take that's available for you at any, even community college. It's like, if you're a working artist and you're like, I don't know how to do this, the business end of art, like there's all the how-to books that you can read, but it doesn't doesn't necessarily do what a class could do for you when you want one-on-one instruction and other people asking similar, same questions. So I think there should be courses that are available um, to assist in that because it's still a struggle for me today to handle all of like doing a website or marketing and having your image taking even taking the photographs of your images, which can be daunting because if you're not repre- if you're not taking a photograph to properly represent your work, it's not going to want to be seen or looked at or or haven't even put out in a place where it can be seen. So I think that. Um, this is a process I'm still learning and I'll probably still be learning it uh, till the day I die. I, I don't intend to ever master that, but it's really a fine line between putting all your energies into making work or, you know, you have to learn to siphon off some of those energies for that aspect of it as well and to be prepared that it's going to be part of the job. If you like to see being an artist as a job and what, this is what you want to do, that's part of the job.
0: Yeah, I've always, uh, ever since film school, been baffled that that doesn't seem to be a part of any sort of degree plan. Um, How to build a production, how to build a practice where, I mean, in my public school education, they don't even tell you how to do your taxes. Like, you learn through trial and error. And Whereas my girlfriend, who went to a private school, like they're teaching her how to do her taxes as an entrepreneur, how to write off business expenses. I really think that a degree plan, whether it's undergrad or master's is up for debate, but any degree yeah. plan that's in the arts should have, automatically have classes in it where you're getting the one-on-one on all this other stuff because it's absolutely part of the practice if you're serious about the practice.
1: It's, it's 100% part of the practice. And you don't realize it because you, you're so busy working on your craft and figuring out who you are as an artist and what your imagery is and, and until you till you understand your system of making and how you produce artwork, um, which is hard enough to figure out, um, you just end up making anything for a while until you, you know, whatever inspires you, until you find uh, like the core of who you are and what you want to, to make. But I've, I'm a really strong believer in apprenticeships um, and I really wish that our society would lean harder on apprenticeships with people who have accomplished these goals already and should uh, inform the next generation. And it also gives value to that knowledge at a different age where people maybe are looking to someone who's younger, uh, but the people that have experienced it for many years and are older um have that knowledge already and just to find a way to connect those generation gaps would be really wonderful
0: yeah well when i was walking to the ferry this morning to go to my first podcast session i was thinking about uh, what today's conversations was going to be and it led me to thinking about why aren't there more apprenticeships why isn't that the normality and,
1: I wish it was the normality. Yeah,
0: because then you, rather than going into debt, people would actually get paid to to help out a practicing artist while also learning every single thing that they need to know.
1: Well, people sometimes I think people think it's a waste of time of their time, but if they're you could spend more time spinning your wheels than the few years of an apprenticeship that that could gain you. Um, even understanding how many hours a day that you need, like, to be an artist and a working artist takes a lot of dedication and a lot of uh, commitment that where other people are watching all sorts of different movie series or things on Netflix or Hulu and they ask you, you know, when you get together like, have you seen this, have you seen this? I'm like, nope, nope, nope. You know, sometimes you just don't have you don't have that same type of time when you're committed to what you're doing and you also have also time that has to be taken away from your art to actually work to be able to survive if you're not selling enough work to be able to do that and it takes an immense amount of work to sell to be able to do that Um, and so those skills if you could, you know, to connect the generations that way would be just such a pivotal thing it would be so great in our society and our society in America doesn't necessarily value necessarily uh the older generation it's easier to push away instead of we should be pulling them to us uh, and learning from them and educating them in, in, in what we're doing now too. You know, There should be a give and take there that happens. Uh, which was, uh, it's kind of a revelation for me, it just happened recently. So when I blew up the image because I was wanted to get to this surface, I wanted the the Spirit of the person to come to the surface as much as possible, as close to me as physically possible. So I blew it up and brought it all the way to the front of the paper, and I even eliminated the pencil drawing, eliminated the original uh, image, just to have this connectivity as close to the surfaces to me as possible for these pieces. And they're new. I've got these two. Pe- There's two of them in the show, and it's a whole new uh, direction for me uh, that came out of actually preparing for this. Uh, show, so I guess I can take it back sometimes when you do prepare for a show there is some inspiration that happens that moves on into the work that you didn't expect when you were just buried in the studio you know yeah. so this was actually from a quail uh, drawing and I eliminated the quail but uh, I, I, I love feeling the lack of depth, like everything coming out towards you, and I'm, I'm working on doing that even more in the next pieces Um, these are all from the bird book series um, all different people and when I choose the, or decide about the, the drawing I do as uh, detailed as possible as realistically as possible and then I, I move into when I do the painting part So it takes us some time to do the drawing part that's where all of the uh, uh, time goes when I do the graphite with mechanical pencils But when I go to do the painting aspect of it, the colors choose themselves because I've spent that whole time drawing thinking about this person and then the colors, I already know, it comes to my mind what the colors will be and I place them uh, where I feel they belong radiating from the individual and I, I just start painting the colors it happens usually pretty quickly and I, they flow in a way for me visually that actually like when I'm done in, in my mind maybe I hear sound like there's a harmony that happens when the colors are moving in a way to cause this vibration that says okay then they're here then I connected so there's certainly a sound base in, in, within me when it comes to color and the application of color next to color And the earlier pieces, one of the newer pieces that I have now, this is an older one, this is a new, uh, not newer, but in the middle of a series, but the newest piece that I made right here, this is a a wood thrush, and it's actually a sound piece designed, I thought about it as a sound piece, because the person that uh, I made this drawing from, um, I've had some interesting conversations about sound, and uh, with her, so I put embroidery thread on this because I wanted it to be even closer to the surface than even the painting. So now they're coming out of this painting even more. And I left the the, the voice of the bird, which is coming off of the page, this empty space. Uh, I left space for the sound to exist in that in that piece right there. This uh, the sculptures are a little bit different than the two dimensional work. They have uh, the same connectivity of Um, lines or objects that come out of the surface of the bird. This bird in particular is a found object. This is a Tilso bird from Japan, from a Tilso company, which went out of production, I think, in the 40s. They stopped doing these sort of uh, ceramic owls, and so it's very hard to find them now. But when I make these, I don't think of any person in particular, and I'm wondering if I think about myself. I'm not sure but this one in particular, I love the fact that I've—I wanted these branchings to stretch out in a way that it's—it's uh, it's a breakable piece. It's—it's it's, uh, precarious. It's breakable. It moves when, when you know someone walks by or the train goes by. And I didn't know if I—I I didn't want to stop myself from making something, knowing that it could break. I wanted to feel that I could stretch that anyway. And take that chance because what I wanted, it maybe it's breakable, and that's fine too, you know. And I put all the exact the matched embroidery threads really tightly. I wrap them so it's um, the connectivity is seamless. I don't want it to feel like something just stuck on there. I want it to feel like it is actually part of the bird. And the eye colors are exactly reflected in these sort of um, um, speaking of mycology, kind of these spore-like branches that come out of the, this owl, um, and I wasn't sure if they were looking, the owl saying, I need to see you, or wanted the audience to see it, you know, when I make it. Because they take such a long time to make, it leaves a lot of room for my imagination to storytell for myself, to figure out what they are. It's funny, I can identify these as People or as birds like this is a a bittern which is a water bird but it's also uh, a friend of mine who is an educator and a filmmaker herself and uh, when I think of her I think of uh, her holding herself kind of close to herself she doesn't put herself out like that it stays a little tight so when I did the painting of it it stayed closer to the body of of the bird that she chose Uh, this is a great blue heron a uh, wonderful friend who uh, was an opera singer at one time, and now he's more of a uh, entrepreneur um, and runs a uh, bit of a cabaret or music hall here in Brooklyn. Um, super talented couple, actually, that I worked with for a time. And uh, you know sometimes I can't understand or explain why I put the paintings in certain locations, and people always ask me why. But I just felt that need to... Cover up the eyes that the eyes were seeing from somewhere else. It wasn't necessarily from here, you know. They were seeing from elsewhere, or they were being something was being brought to them from elsewhere. Um, this is a really important piece for me. This is a sculpture. This is the very first time that um, I mean, I love I love tchotchke sculptures. I think growing up in Ohio, everyone collected something, and my mom collected little Siamese cats. And So these ceramic pieces I started collecting um, and deciding that I wanted to incorporate them into my artwork, this is the very first one that I decided that I didn't want the object to remain whole in and of itself. I wanted it to be something else, just like the drawings or paintings become something else. So I broke the heads off and extended up the necks, um, and added these these uh, additional spikes uh, to it, and then wrapped the embroidery thread, trying to keep this seamless um, object. And this is this intense uh, kind of a mating dance, or it's very sexual, I suppose, or or intimate. Uh, we can just call it intimate. And you can always question if the spikes are are they're dangerous to each other, but they're doing it anyway, or uh, they're protecting themselves from everyone else so they can have this moment. And these take extended periods of time to make because I don't like there to see any break in in the threads. I like it to be very seamless and no glue showing, and I want it to be as if this is what the birds look like. Kind of like birds of paradise where you don't... The bird is just sitting there in one minute and lifts up its branches and then something magical is is part of this mating dance that they have. And I think I was looking at a lot of those images when I was making this piece.
0: Thank you, Sherry, for joining me on the podcast today.
1: Thank you, Eric, for having me. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you have a moment, please consider subscribing to the show wherever you listen. And if the app allows for it, please leave a rating and review. That way, the algorithm moves us up in recommendations. It's a great way for new listeners to find our show.